Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Friday, the 15th of October. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Jan Frannan. Jan, I got out and enjoyed some of my freedoms yesterday. Oh, yeah? What what freedoms did you enjoy yesterday? Um, so one I got to enjoy and one I tried to enjoy but wasn't able to. So the first one was I went out for dinner for the first time in four months. That was great. Okay. Was Although, it good? It was good. It was good. I am waiting for them to be able to stand up and have a drink, though, because, I, you know, you want to be able to talk to everyone, get around the room, you know, so... Still holding out for that. And um, the other one was I tried to go and get a haircut. Oh. I was absolutely kidding myself, thinking I could just roll up to the barber and, like, sit there and wait. They're like, dude, we're, we're booked out oh. all day, tomorrow, and the next day. Kudos to you for even trying. I had a friend who tried to book in for a haircut, and they said to her they don't have any places until November. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, man, you just need to get your missus to just put a bowl around your head and, and snip <laughs> it off. That's the Sydney way. Yeah, that could be the new look for sure. Um, In today's briefing, it comes from um, one of our listeners, Jen. Yeah, that's right. So we're chatting to a woman named Simone. She got in touch with us. She's a little bit worried, actually, about Sydney opening back up because she's immunocompromised. I think that I do feel a bit hopeful, but I also still feel a lot of sadness. It still does feel like a time where I'm being left behind and so are a lot of my immunocompromised friends. Yeah, so she's asked us to do an episode on what living with COVID means for people like her, people who are immunocompromised, and there are hundreds of thousands of them. And um, we'll get to that in the second half of the podcast. First, here are today's headlines. And just a quick reminder to follow us on Instagram, by the way. Um, today's a good day to do it Friday because this is when we do the briefing quiz. And if you've listened to the headlines all week, then you'll nail the quiz. And just a tip, there'll be three questions in today's quiz coming out of the headlines you're about to hear. All right, we're starting with news around climate change, which, you know, we've talked a fair bit about this week. But yesterday, Australia's richest man, Twiggy Forrest, gave a speech warning that international investors will basically abandon Australia if the government doesn't adopt a net zero emissions target. We are watching international investors pulling the pin on Australian projects now. Can you blame them? They want a world which doesn't cook. Yeah, Andrew Twiggy Forrest there, he's been making a lot of noise this week and the warning he gave there about international investors echoes similar warnings from the Treasurer Josh Frydenberg and the Reserve Bank. Twiggy Forrest also called on members of the National Party and the government to agree to net zero. Um, They're going to make a big call on that over the weekend. And interesting that the richest man's been saying one thing about the net zero argument and Gina Reinhart, the richest woman, has been saying another, Jan. Yeah, that's right. She's um, she's warning that a push to net zero is going to cost us billions and that it's going to put undue pressure on uh, on family farms. And this is something that Federal Cabinet is going to uh, spend the week discussing already and it's, it's going to discuss it into next week as well. Um, the Nationals are looking at this plan. Their concerns are, I suppose, similar to Ms Reinhart's in that they don't want a net zero emissions target to affect rural and regional communities. And Prince William has called out the space race billionaires um, saying they should actually be focusing on climate change. We need some of the world's greatest brains and minds fixed on trying to repair this planet, not trying to find the next place to go and live. So that was an interview that he gave with um, the BBC and the Prince said that the world's young people are going to be the ones that are bearing the brunt of this kind of increasing climate anxiety and and we're feeling really fearful and, and uncertain about the future. You know, he made the comments amid what we've seen a, 
I wouldn't call them a slew. How many have gone up? Three, three private rockets have gotten off the ground. Well, Bezos um, did commercial. his second. Yeah, Bezos did his second one this week. So it's it's all going ahead, despite what the prince says. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, the royal family's come out as I, I suppose they have been conservationists mm. for some time, but it's interesting to hear them slam the billionaires in space and tell them that they should be working on projects here on Earth. Yeah, they're really they're leaning into wrong. it. The royals. Um, Prince Charles had his BBC interview where he's got a car running on um, leftover white wine. Um, I did yeah. read that. Yeah, look, it's all good for Prince Charles to power his Aston Martin with cheese and wine, I think it was, but there were, you know, environmentalists that made the very sound argument that that one's a bit difficult to scale up. And mandatory jab rules come into effect in Victoria today and that comes right as a state recorded 2,297 cases yesterday, a record no one wanted to set. I know that people will be feeling anxious about them, but they are in line with the modelling um, and our goals are still our goals. Uh, this shows the importance of getting vaccinated. Yeah, that was Victorian Deputy Premier James Molino speaking there, um, assuring people that they are still easing restrictions when they hit that 70% vaccination target. They're currently at 62% of the eligible population fully vaccinated, so approaching 70 there. Yeah, and from today, those various groups of workers, over a million workers in total, will need to have at least one jab to keep working. And all that sobering news out of Victoria comes as um, we get some good news in New South Wales, Jan, that uh, we're looking at hitting this 80% double dose target earlier than expected, which means those restrictions are easing that come with hitting that target are happening a week earlier, they're happening on Monday. Yeah, that's right. Well, the ACT is out of lockdown um, as of this morning as well. I suppose you can say it's good news. I do hope the Victorians um, come out of their lockdown. They're due to come out four days ahead of schedule, which doesn't seem like much. I know we were talking about it yesterday, but you've got to remember Melbourne has been in lockdown for the longest time of any city in the world. It's um, surpassed Buenos Aires. Uh, they had 244 days and, and Melbourne's just gone over that. So, yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah, well, a week early feels amazing, though. Like, it's it's such a positive thing. It does feel like, you know, Santa rocked up, you know, on the 18th of December. That's what it feels like. It does make a difference, doesn't it? It's like mm. when you kind of, when you get when you get a meal and then it's sort of free or something. You're just like, oh, wow, that was a freebie. I've just had a, I've just had an extra week that I wasn't expecting. Don't yeah, know about that analogy worries me, though, because there's no such thing as a free lunch. No, no, it really was a terrible analogy. <laughs> Sticking to it, though. And there are fears that up to 600 people may have received fake COVID exemption certificates from a Queensland woman pretending to be a doctor. Wow, this story is ridiculous. So police are combing through the phone and computer um, of a woman, Maria Carmel Powell, who was arrested on the Gold Coast yesterday. Um, the 45-year-old was charged with pretending to be a health practitioner and is accused of handing out exemptions for COVID testing, vaccinations and mask wearing. Police were saying that this woman, and I should say that she does hold a doctorate in research on addiction, not a medical doctorate. She's not a doctor, but police are alleging that she's been selling these false certificates to people all over Australia. Um, and they'll also allege that she's charging $150 for, in some cases, for some of these certificates. So not good. She's the first person to be charged for something like this in the state of Queensland. And would you pay more for an artwork that was complete or half shredded? Uh, I, oh, I don't know. Depends Depends on the artwork and depends how much money I had. Am I, I mortgaged to the eyeballs? 
Yeah, that does change things, doesn't it? Um, so get this. In 2018, there was a Banksy artwork. Um, it was this um, picture of a girl holding a balloon. It was called Girl with Balloon. Um, it originally was on, on the streets, spray painted on a wall somewhere, but then they put it in a frame. It sold for $2 million, which sounds like a lot of money, but right after it sold at this auction in London, there was a bit of a trick. They found out there was a, people watching on, there was a shredder headed inside the bottom of the frame. So the artwork starts sliding down through the shredder and gets half shredded. So it stops mm. halfway. You got half. I remember the, this. The, yeah, the bottom half of it's shredded. The top half of it's normal, still in the frame. So last night, three years later, this new half shredded version of the artwork, which they've renamed "Love Is in the Bin" as opposed to "Girl with Balloon," sold. So the first one sold for two million. Last night, it sold in London for twenty nine million dollars. <gasps> You're kidding! So more oh than my God. more than ten times the value by shredding it. Who? Is that investor, whoever it is that bought that artwork for $2 million, is cheering? Because I remember seeing that one being shredded mm. and people were surprised. So people had no idea that was going to happen. It was, in, it was in the auction house and people were yeah. turning around going, oh, my God, what's going on? So what? They made $27 million. Yeah. <laughs> it's just classic Banksy, isn't it? He knows how to get people's attention and create drama and narrative and, and money. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Right after this message, uh, living with COVID for the immunocompromised. Not going to lie, I've had a pretty good week, Tom. I saw my parents, I booked a yoga class, I got my moustache waxed. It was great. I'm living my best life this week, mate. Oh, well, that's good Good for you, Jan. I'm sure people listening in <laughs> Western Australia, South Australia, Queensland, Tassie are going, I've been waxing my moustache all year. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's a big deal in know, Sydney where you live. Exactly. It's huge here to be able to do that, obviously because we've been in lockdown for almost four months. And also it's a big deal in Melbourne because mm. Victoria is soon to emerge from lockdown as well. Mm. So there's a lot of excitement about your hair lip, but there's also for other people... <laughs> A lot of nervousness as things reopen. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why on this episode of The Briefing, we're going to take a look at what does living with COVID mean for the half a million Australians who are severely immunocompromised? Yeah, being immunocompromised means you have a weakened immune system and you're at greater risk of getting really sick if you contract COVID. It also means the vaccine might not work as well for you, which is why the Chief Health Officer... Professor Paul Kelly made this announcement. Unfortunately, some people that have uh, have immune systems that don't work as well as the, the general population, um, those vaccines may not lead to that protection. The evidence is now clear that people in those categories of immune compromised uh, should receive a third dose. So that was Professor Paul Kelly, Australia's Chief Health Officer, announcing last week one of the measures to help severely immunocompromised people will be getting a third dose of the vaccine. It's unclear whether that means everyone who's immunocompromised, whether they're mild or moderately immunocompromised, or whether it just will be restricted to severely immunocompromised people. Either way, it's really resonated with one of our listeners, Simone. Um, She's with us now. She was actually the one who suggested that we do this story because this is personal for her and and we love it when people get in touch with us and suggest stories as well. Simone, firstly, thank you for being a, a listener of The Briefing. No, I love the show. I really enjoy it. Yeah, and great that you've brought up this really important topic for us about what life's going to be like for immunocompromised people as we live with COVID in inverted commas. Tell us about your story and why this topic matters to you. 
So I have a condition called psoriatic arthritis. It's an autoimmune condition. And to prevent long-term damage to my joints, I need to take a medication that changes the way my immune system works and makes me immunocompromised. I actually got diagnosed in December last year, so I became immunocompromised during the pandemic. At first, I was fearful for my vulnerable friends and family, but now I can see that if I pass away because of COVID, I would be one of those people who'd be dismissed as having a pre-existing condition. And what state are you in and how do you feel as people start talking about living with COVID? What does that do for you? How does it make you feel? I live in the ACT, so a little bit more confident being here because of the high vaccination rate, but I still do have concerns. Obviously, the ACT is quite affected by what happens in Sydney. I do become fearful because I think that even with the states where, you know, things are closed, it'll have to change eventually. And so it is just a scary, um, uncertain time. Are you in this severely immunocompromised category that means you can get the third shot? Yeah, I am. I've spoken to my GP about it, so that's really good. I spoke to her on Monday, but I do know that for some of my immunocompromised friends, they are a bit uncertain and some of their doctors have been Mm. uncertain about if they'll be eligible. So I think that also is contributing to more uncertainty and fear. Simone, we've got an expert standing by Dr. Sarah Sasson. She's an immunologist and she's a senior lecturer at the Kirby Institute at the University of New South Wales. Let's bring her in now because I know that you've got some questions for her. So what's one of the things that you really want to know? I would really love to know what living with COVID means for people like me who are immunocompromised. Yeah, thanks so much for um, the questions and really great to hear your story as well. I think there's a lot of apprehension in general in the community as we move into this next phase of coming out of lockdown. But I acknowledge that no one's more apprehensive or more fearful than people such as yourself who are living with immunocompromise. What does it look like? Well, as we come out of a stage lockdown, obviously there's going to be increase people mingling and increase risk of transmission. And what we need to do is make sure everyone's got some level of protection from the virus. But I think what it means in a practical term is that people who are immunocompromised are going to have this heightened level of vigilance because unlike the general population, they're going to be more vulnerable, even as you said, if they've had two doses of a COVID vaccine. So I suspect these are the people who will be, you know, wearing their masks a lot more vigilantly. I'd hope that they're getting a lot more testing at the slightest signs of a cold or a flu. And we're encouraging our patients to present at the first sign of when they get a positive COVID test as well. It's very important that these people present to healthcare facilities early so that we can assess them and um, offer them treatments as well. I imagine that for a lot of us, once we sort of move out of the lockdown phase, we'll go back to what, what we think is a normal life quite quickly. You know, it'll snap back, so to speak. But given what you've just said about the practicalities of living immunocompromised in a COVID world, could this sense of fear and having to be careful and go through all these processes go on for years or, or forever potentially for immunocompromised people? I think it's a really important discussion to have because I think that it needs to be part of the public health messaging that once we open up and once, you know, 90% or more of the general population have two doses of COVID vaccine, you know, there's this mindset that, as you say, you know, a lot of people do want to get back to the pre-COVID life, but the reality is that risk is there. And I think people need to be aware of people in their own lives who are immunosuppressed or immunocompromised. I think that's part of the social contract. You know, I think we've all been buoyed by the vaccination rate uptake 
in Australia and it looks like we're going to do very well in terms of the overall vaccination rate and I think that's a positive because it will that will have a protective effect but what we don't know so the big unknowns are um, you know there's still going to be a proportion of the population who for their own reasons won't get vaccinated we know that from looking at the UK and American data even in the general populations vaccination isn't sterilizing which means there will be breakthrough infections so some people after their vaccinations can still contract COVID. They may even be asymptomatic, which means they can spread it to other people unknowingly, or they may have mild disease. Then we have people who don't respond to the vaccines as well as other people. So there's going to be this group of patients with lower levels of immunity mingling. And then the one thing we've learned about COVID-19 is to expect the unexpected because, you know, the Delta variant really surprised a lot of communities and there's no reason why they won't be future variants of concern as well. Simone, I know that you said that you were eligible for getting this third vaccine that the health minister has now proposed for immunocompromised people. That's not going to be for everybody, though. That's just for severely immunocompromised people. And you say that you've got people in your life who are immunocompromised, but perhaps not severely and might not be eligible for the vaccine. Yeah, I've spoken to a few people I know in that camp, or at least who think they're in that camp, because there is a bit of confusion at the moment. So I would be really interested to know what happens to those immunocompromised people who don't meet the criteria for the third vaccine. Those people have been vaccinated six months ago as part of Group 1B, and so they might be concerned about possible waning immunity as things open up as well. So I think the um, announcement by Targi on last Friday um, was really broadly welcomed, I think, both by physicians um, and by people living with um, immunosuppression. The guidelines are fairly inclusive. They're strongly evidence-based, so they've looked at the data from the overseas data who has the lowest rates of seroconversion, so people who've had solid organ transplants, bone marrow transplants, hematological malignancies. But it is quite broad and inclusive in terms of people who are on prednisone, 20 milligrams, and other targeted therapies. There is a category where it's, if you see a specialist and it's their opinion that you fall into that category, there is an avenue there. Overall, it does include a lot of people and there is some leeway in there that the physicians can make a call as well. And the other thing I wanted to say to be hopeful about is um, the new therapies coming online. So the issue with the vaccination is if you don't make a lot of your own antibodies, but we now have citrovimab, which is a synthetic antibody, um, which is licensed for use in Australia and there are there is supply. Um, so patients who present early after diagnosis um, may qualify for this synthetic antibody. And I was just reading this morning, there's a new article in the New England Journal coming out of Harvard of a new combination synthetic antibody. So the other thing to be hopeful of is as we head into this uncertain time is just the rate of progression that we're seeing in the medical and scientific research community. So I'm very hopeful that what the future might look like is you get your vaccines, you get your boosters, and then you can measure how much antibody you've made. And if there's a deficit there, what we ultimately would like to do as physicians is to correct that and give some kind of passive immunity to these people who can't mount their own response to the vaccine. Dr. Sasson, you paint a hopeful picture for the future, but this is happening now in New South Wales. You know, we've reopened, life is returning to some level of normality. What advice would you have for somebody like Simone, who is immunocompromised and who might be a little bit nervous about case numbers going up and about how the next few weeks will unfold? First of all, you check that list from Atagi and if you're eligible, um, I would strongly encourage people who are eligible to get their third dose. The recommendation is two to six months after they've received their second dose. 
Secondly, just going to have to be vigilant in terms of wearing masks and, um, you know, just doing risk assessments about, you know, where you're going to and testing. Like, so as soon as there's the slightest um, hint of a cold or flu, get tested. Um, and this is advice, by the way, that I would, I'm telling a lot of people as well who aren't immunocompromised, because I think the social contract doesn't end when lockdown finishes. And I think that's the message we need to get across. So this is actually everyone's responsibility. And the final thing is that's, I mean, we are reassured. I, I do work as a, a clinician in Western Sydney and the numbers in hospital and in ICU are dropping. So we're encouraged yeah. by that. But what we're also seeing is people who test positive for COVID and then feel okay and stay at home and don't present promptly and then run into trouble later. And I said, some of these medications like citrovimab, they're only licensed for use very early in the disease. So we're telling our patients to please, as soon as you get tested, come forward for assessment because the field is changing so quickly, but there are these treatments that we can offer if we know about the condition early. So Simone, what did you think hearing all that? There was obviously a little bit of hope there for, for new developments, but also a bit of caution. What's your reaction? I think that I do feel a bit hopeful, but I also still feel a lot of sadness. It still does feel like a time where I'm being left behind and so are a lot of my immunocompromised friends, but I think there are things on the horizon that do make me feel a bit more hopeful. So thank you, Dr. Sarah. And I think the other great thing you're doing is really engaging with the topic, just keeping an eye on the horizon because we've seen so much progress in the last two years and I really think even just in the next six months, things will change a lot. All right, that was a great chat with Dr. Sarah Sasson from um, the Kirby Institute at New South Wales Uni and Simone Black, a briefing listener who you heard there. Yeah, the one thing I took away from that chat is things might be looking up in the future and there might be some remedies and medications on the horizon, but for now, it seems as though immunocompromised people have to be really careful. Mm. And if I'm being honest, that would that would suck. That would be really scary. Yeah, well, for their families as well, the people that live with them, that also have a big impact on the risk of that person in their household getting COVID. Um, it also just brings home the message for the rest of the country to make sure we get vaccinated because we're putting these vulnerable people at risk if we don't. Absolutely. All right, that's it for your weekday briefing. Um, Jamila Rizvi, who have you got this week on the weekend briefing? I have one of the best conversations we've had on the weekend briefing for you this weekend. I, I'm paying favourites with my children. It's not okay. I am chatting to someone called Dr. Eve Rees. They're an award-winning writer, podcaster and historian. Eve uses they, them pronouns and is trans and they've written a book that is called All About Eve, very fittingly. We have a really broad and wide-ranging conversation about transgenderism and the public narrative, what we see in pop culture and the often homogenous kind of stories we get told, including the born in the wrong body trope, which Eve explains is not useful for a lot of trans people. We talk about Eve's transition and their experience of the world and the people who responded to them explaining that they were trans. And Eve gives some truly excellent advice to the parents of trans children or the potential parents of trans children. All right, that's your weekend briefing. Um, hope you have a good one. Um, big shout out to the hardworking team uh, that make the briefing. Executive producer Dan Mullins, editor Matt Curry, news producers Liam Kennedy and Brooke Loudner and social media producer Emily Lodge. Have a good one. We'll catch you Monday. Listener.